Hello, hustlers. Welcome to the first installment of our new program called Deep Dive. We are bringing back, at least once a month this year, we're going to try and bring back a guest that we love who's been on the show and discuss an album that they worked on in depth. Sometimes it's going to be a classic album. Sometimes it might be one that you should know about that you don't. Sometimes it might even be one we don't like that we're going to reassess. And it might be the artists themselves. It might be a session musician. It might be the producer. Who knows? But we're just going to see if we can get some, you know, reconnect with some old guests that we love and hear their stories relating to an album that would be interesting to discuss. First up, this year, we're going to be talking with bassist Matthew Seligman. You may remember Matthew. He was on the show a little over a year ago. He was an early member of the Thompson Twins and the Soft Boys, and he went on to partner with Thomas Dolby with another former guest of ours, Kevin Armstrong. And uh, they put out the Golden Age Wireless album, with She Blinded Me With Science, and then the follow-up, which I think is amazing, The Flat Earth. And it was a very sort of misunderstood and underappreciated album at the time that people seem to be coming around to now. There's a very devoted you know, fan base for this album. So we just hear Matthew's recollections. In some cases, these deep dive episodes might be only of interest to the people who care about the album or the guest, or they might just think they're open to learning new things. I don't know. There's there's not really going to be a structure here to these. We're going to sort of play it by ear and see how they go. But we want to engage the guests that we love and hear some interesting stories about the making of great albums or maybe even bad albums. I I say that because there's gonna be one of those coming up in the next couple of months too. Anyway, so uh, here it is, and uh, hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think of Deep Dive Volume One. Let's kick this off. First of all, I appreciate you being willing to be our guinea pig on this. We, I got, I, after I talked to Kevin a few months ago and we were talking about the blah, blah, blah album that he played on at Viggy's. That's one of my favorites yeah. ever. And I thought, why, why don't I see if some of our old guests would be willing to come back on and we just talk about one album that I like. And in some cases yeah. it might not even be an album I like. Maybe it's just one that <laughs> stories, you know, or, yeah. or they like, or I want to understand it better or whatever. So you're the guinea pig. And I realized... Okay. <laughs> You were the guinea pig last time too, because it was oh, really? the first question I'd ever, or the first interview I'd ever done on Skype with a microphone, and I wasn't even sure that the technology was going to work, but it worked. <laughs> so uh, something about you, Matthew, you're just such a kind-hearted <laughs> guy. I just I go to you in these moments, you know. So maybe uh, it's because maybe it's because I'm sitting in this little puddle of obscurity, maybe. and every every <laughs> six months I get a phone call from. <laughs> John Lamoureux, and I think, ah, oh, it's like phoning from a sort of lost moon, a prison moon. Well, <laughs> so, have, you ever, have you ever maybe don't feel I love loved? To talk. <laughs> you know, you have a fan here. If you ever don't feel loved, you can sit in bed no. and think. At least I know John Lamoureux loves me. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. No, everyone's very kind. You know, I Good. mean, Facebook's great for people like me who are wondering where they are now. <laughs> That's so true. Oh, that's great. Well, good. I'm glad we're going to do this. I mean, I think actually this is, I think I mentioned it last time about Googling myself. So Uh I, I, I mention it every time we talk, (laughs) but I don't actually do it more than about the same frequency that we have interviews. (laughs) Well, two in uh, just over a year. So you must Google yourself on an annual basis. (laughs) Okay, good. 
So we're going to talk about Thomas Dolby's The Flat Earth. And uh, yeah. it's one of my favorite albums ever. And I'll just give some quick background information. It uh, came out in either March or February of 1984. It was the follow-up to The Golden Age of Wireless. There's a whole confusing history about that album, too, which it came out in England, and then it came out in the U.S., and they swapped some tracks around, and then Science came out as a single, and it wasn't on that album, but they put it on the album after the fact, and so yeah. there were multiple releases of that album, and it got really confusing. Well, that, the, what used to happen was that the... the native territory where the artist was signed would release it first and they would all the biggest market was always america and the american label would always revisit the content and and kind of maximize it for the american market and albums would often change between the the european release and the american release yeah and that's exactly what happened there yeah You'd hear that a lot, like on the first Clash album, I always remember. And some of the Beatles albums, honestly. I mean, they would go through these different permutations, depending on where they were. Or merge them, you know, some, or, yeah, some of them got merged. Them. Good point. That's even better. So it, when it was released, it hit number 14 in the UK. It only reached number 35 in the US. Um, the only real chart success off the album was Hyperactive, which I think reached number 17 in the UK making it the highest charting single of Thomas Dolby's career in the UK, uh, which was interesting to me. That was his only big yeah. Um Now, it was a definite... Departure. In the UK. In, in the, the UK, UK yes. Right, um, yeah. I don't think Hyperactive hit, made it to the top 40 in the US. I um, No, in the US, it was science, wasn't it? That yeah. was his hit in the US. That was the one, and then Hyperactive was, I'm sure... The record labels just thought, oh, here's the obvious follow-up single for, we're just going to keep this going. And it's got one of the greatest videos ever. Yeah. And, uh, it just still didn't quite work out. And I don't know why, but we'll talk about that when we get to that song. But um, my own personal history with The Flat Earth is actually that I I haven't lived with it as long as I would have liked. I bought it for about a dollar at a thrift store maybe six or seven years ago and um, immediately fell in love. And um, I'm one of those people, I think, who misunderstood or misjudged Thomas for a long time. When I was in college, I bought his greatest hit CD, Retro Spectacle. And I oh, remember yeah. thinking yeah. there were so many songs on there that were not like science. And I was expecting everything to sound like science and hyperactive, you know? Yeah. And there was a much richer tapestry going on. And I didn't, I wasn't, I. it's not that I didn't like it. I wasn't prepared for it. And so it wasn't until much later that I came around to how varied and deep and rich his sort of palette was in those days. And the Flat Earth is a real testament to that. When it was being, how did you even come on? I mean, I know you were around for the golden age of wireless. From the beginning, do you remember his thinking behind it all? Was he purposely yeah. trying to kind of move past science at this point? Tom never talked much. He's quite private. He didn't sit down and have strategy discussions with us. Uh, and anyway, it was it was all him personally. He'd he'd make the plans, and we we were just kind of the crew, really, mm. the musical crew. Mm -hmm. So he didn't talk a lot about it in advance. But we we'd talk a lot about things we loved. Was there a plan? Well, the, uh, and I was going to say, well, there wasn't one really that I was aware of. But but I know that Thomas uh, would have planned it uh, impeccably. It's just not something he really talked about. Okay. So I, I can just remember I first met Thomas 
and we to play Moog, not bass at all. Mm. And uh, that was she blinded me with science. And I never Moog pl- on there. Yeah, I'd never oh. played Moog before, and the pattern with with Thomas was he loved to give me things I couldn't do. <laughs> you, you said when we were talking about the interview, um, oh, this is going to be great, and you're the star of the show uh-huh. um, because of the bass end. But actually, uh, Thomas is the star of the show um, uh, in terms of the bass end because he wrote all those bass lines. That's what I wondered. He actually wrote most of all of the parts for mm-hmm. that music. So I would see his first step in making the Flat Earth as a, as a composer. Mm. Um, and that's really what Thomas is. He's like a, an electronic Beethoven. Yeah. Um, and whereas most people, it, it's pretty tough if they just give you uh, a lot of direction about your parts. It, it's not tough when Thomas does it because he actually writes the whole part, every nuance, minus about 10%. Um, we can talk about the details when we go through the tracks, but minus maybe between 10 and 20% for human expression. Hmm. Uh, they're basically Thomas's parts on the guitar, the bass, the drums, um, and all the keyboards. And he, he re- it really is a genuine solo album and a solo project. And it would have all been formed probably by years of writing. Some songs come, you know, in a couple of months, and, and some in a couple of years or longer. But he would have had the plan, and it's it's not going to be right for me to sort of say what was in his head. But certainly after after science, I know he'd finished the Golden Age of Wireless and they thought there wasn't a hit on it. Or Europa had come out, which is a great track. A lot of people sure love, but it, but it hadn't been a, a big hit. And I think Thomas decided then to do something more electronic. Ah. Uh, but then, rather than program science and submarines, which he did as a pair of tracks with Tim Freese-Jones, isn't it? Or Green. T- Tim Green. Tim Freese-Jones. Yeah. Rather than strange really rather than program them uh, he programmed the drums but played everything else so there was this strange kind of human element mm. um and i'm not sure when midi had come along but it, it it maybe wasn't being used no no depeche mode were around weren't they but then yeah we are in this kind of transition phase where ultravox had done systems of romance with connie plank um and i think even Craftwork when they when they did repeats, a lot of that was done using echoes, and people were finding ways to make automaton type music, but without just before MIDI, it wasn't quite everything is programmed. And so science and submarines had been that they'd been programmed drums, but then played all the rest of the electronics um, or a lot of them, as far as I can remember, and certainly in the bass, were actually played, and that's. Where I came in, he I'd never had a synthesizer before, but he, he wrote these very simple bass lines, every single note of both tracks, and I just had to practice up and learn how to play them. That's uh, that's interesting because, it, it, like, let's take Dissidents, for, for instance, which is the opening track, and you have a co-writing, as does Kevin, and um, maybe one other... Yeah. Person on okay, there. so, sorry, yeah, so that was the, that was the run-up to Flat Earth. But, um, I mean, I can say a bit more about the run of the Flat Earth, if you like. Well, yeah, I, I uh, just, uh, to me, it feels like an album of a guy who's like, oh, you think I'm the blinded with science guy? Let me show yeah. you what I really am. I'm not well, playing that is. game, you know? And what, 
Well, what happened was so science had worked basically and he mm. it came to the point where he wanted to, to make another album and do a tour and that would be a european and american tour with this new album and uh w- w- thomas had uh this whole concept of the flat earth and him as this kind of um eccentric explorer which mm. was going to be a new image to follow up from his science image mm. and you can see on the cover of flat earth it's a completely different yeah. kind of image it's the explorer not the mad scientist yeah so he goes from and, the technology to the earth to the organic, right? I, yeah, I'm because look, he's both sh- so showing both sides. He's panning for gold there, yeah. you know, and he's in a t-shirt. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think we were all inspired by Bowie, and and Bowie had already by that stage established this pattern of going through several different versions of himself. Mm-hmm. And so I think Tom just thought, well, I can do that. I can have a new image, and so he. It, he pro- he wasn't being destructive, uh, you know. He just thought that he could probably pull off moving on from the mad scientist to the to the flat Earth, the eccentric explorer. Mm-hmm. And I think, and um, flat Earth had actually come out with some conversations we'd had about. Uh, we we've been mucking around because I'd done history of science at Cambridge, mm. where his father was a professor of archaeology, I think, or something. Oh. And Tom and I used to really enjoy. Uh, we'd have to keep it secret, you know, because if you were that highly educated, you couldn't possibly <laughs> let people. It wasn't cool, but right. we'd secretly talk about science and, and history of science and stuff. And we'd talked about the flat Earth, which is a kind of crazy, kooky scientific concept. But Tom had taken that idea and moved it on to a sort of eccentric explorer. And mm. then he had a very, I think, a very good idea, uh, which was rather than go to like people did in those days, to amazing studios in places like the Caribbean or residential studio somewhere exotic or just remote. Mm-hmm. He he took us all to Brussels, <laughs> <laughs> which is where the capital of the European Union, and uh-huh. uh, and it was I think it was really clever. We just got a flat near the Atomium in Brussels, and there was nothing. A lot really for us to do there. We, there was a nice bar where we used to go and drink trapeze beer <laughs> with um, a runaway IRA barmaid <laughs> who was she was on the run from you know someone or other, and we just worked. It was a, it was like a, choosing a nice sort of neutral yeah. environment to really focus on our work, not wow. sort of live the Hollywood dream sure. of having had a hit, but actually get some work done. How long were and, you there? We were there for six weeks. Okay, and it was it was just a very good work working environment, not not serious, but mm-hmm. workmanlike. Yeah. And the other thing about the setup, we, we there was albums that we we would talk about that we loved. One of them was Tin Drum, and that I think informed him wanting me to play a bit of Fretless. Okay. But another one that he he consciously chose as a model was Marvin Gaye's. Was it Sexual Healing? Yeah, the album's Midnight Love, I think is the name of that album. Right. And, really, and that's that, what he picked. That was why he, so much of it, uses a TR-808, a Roland drum machine. Huh. Because that that's what uh, Tom had used, uh, sorry, Marvin Gaye had used on Sexual Healing. And so that was, uh, he gave the Roland drum machine to another sort of um, untrained musician called Cliff, Cliff Brigden. Okay. And Cliff Progan had a great taste. Cliff had great taste in what he wore, 
how he looked. He was a man of style, and it came out in his drum programs. They were very understated, but oh. kind of perfect. And actually, a lot of the, the TR-808 programs were, were worked on between Tom and Cliff, but Cliff definitely had input into the, the decisions, okay. although Tom almost certainly again would have written the majority of the parts but I don't, I don't want to tread in anyone's toes here um, you'd have to speak to Tom or Cliff okay so he'd ha he'd made some preliminary decisions that did define quite big parts of the instrumentation certainly the fretless bass and the 808 came directly from a couple of albums that huh. we, we were all listening to and loved wow who would have guessed but you know now well, that you say that I can hear I can absolutely hear the influence of sexual healing on, well, a song like Dissidence or some just the sort of the the vibier. Yeah, I think it's actually flat earth. Or yeah, flat earth. Track. Yeah, I think that might that I think has got a TR808 on it. Yeah, yeah. And there's something kind of soulful in the singing, you know, of uh, in the way he's certainly when That's he goes it. that high, you know, that that was was him going in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I can absolutely hear that now. In fact, if anything, it, it's, it's like, yes, that's what I've been hearing all this time. There's something familiar about it, and now I reckon, especially with the background singers, we're kind of jumping all over the place, but for Flat Earth, it's got those wonderful, I, every song is made better by a black lady singing black, backup, if you ask me. I love it, and he's got these wonderful backup singers on that song, and uh, they sound like the ladies who are singing backup to Marvin Gaye on Sexual Healing. <laughs> Yeah, although, actually, I think, um, I'm not sure, uh, I mean, I can't remember the backing vocal parts, but uh, that might have been the sound he got, but it might not have been how he got it. Oh. Um, you know, I, I, I'd have to go back and listen to the track. Well, I wondered if it was like an influence, though. You know, like you guys are loving yeah, the song, absolutely. so I'd uh, like to put something like that yeah. in my song, too, you know? Absolutely, but then... Uh, he put those sort of those are two quite big strands, and then he he put that all together with uh, the electronic influence actually of going to Brussels, where we worked with a guy called Dan Laxman, who who'd had a hit I think in a band called Telex, but it was a very electronic hit. Hmm. And Dan was a lovely guy and very patient. And I remember we spent the first days of the album, the first five days, just working on the sync pulse to get the, the thing syncing up between the tape and the computer and i remember just seeing tom and dan sitting there for five days solid carefully getting it right and they did ultimately get it right and after five days we started recording but so w w we carried those influences like sexual healing and mm -hmm. tin drum and we went over to brussels and sat down with dan and in his the electronic musician in his home studio in Brussels, not in a fancy um, a multi track, but in Dan Laxman's home studio, hmm. on a on at floor at, on the ground floor of his his Brussels home in wow. in a side street in a in a <laughs> residential street. So when this is going on for five days, what do you do? Do you go back to bed? Do you watch TV? Uh, do you go to the movies? Do you stay no, there waiting on call? That was probably when we met the runaway IRA person in the pub <laughs> and discovered this great beer called Trappist, which is made by monks, but it's very strong. Oh. And also, Kevin is very funny, and um, he uh, he's fun to hang out with, so yeah. that was always quite easy to do. But Tom just kept, 
you know, we worked in daylight hours and we got oh, up wow. in the morning and uh, it was very un-rock and roll. It was just very, like I said before, workmanlike. And mm -hmm. uh, if we had nothing to do, no, we'd wander off and um, hmm. probably tend to go back to the flat. I think the other part of this was not to get us down the bar, uh, like I said at the beginning, not to sort of live the rock and roll life, but we tend to probably go back to the flat and muck around. Okay. Um, I I've got no idea what I did for Do you play poker? Weeks. Is there a snooker <laughs> no, table nearby? No. <laughs> no, we didn't have any, we didn't take drugs. Yeah. You go I for a jog? Gone, I might have gone for a jog, yeah, because okay. I was into soccer. Okay. But there was one point at which he asked us to go back to the flat and work on a backing track for Michael Jackson. Mm. So we might have been doing that because there would have probably been something, we used to use Porter Studios and these these little four tracks that used the cassette tape uh, to make demos with. And we might have been back at the flat making demos. Interesting. Um, wow. Uh, uh, and doing a bit of stuff like that, that would have been um, quite fun. Yeah. I can't actually remember, okay. as you probably realized. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just curious what people do during those downtimes, you know? I mean, what is there to do? I, I think I definitely at some point went up the Atomium, which is this atom-shaped building they have in Brussels. So we'd have done a bit of sightseeing. At least it was at the beginning. So we probably, even in Brussels, probably could do a bit of sightseeing for, sightseeing for at least the first week. Okay. Was it, a, was it summertime, fall? What time of year? Uh, it wasn't dark, and it must have been quite nice. Okay. Uh, if it came out the spring of '84, I'm guessing you guys did this maybe the spring, summer, or fall into winter. Yeah. '83. Um, before we get into the first song, I wanted to read yeah. a quote that I, I. So I was looking at all these different lists that have you know the flat Earth as. In this particular list, it was the top 100 obscure albums to hear before you die or something like that. And yeah. um, it was number 35 on the list. And James, Deed, James Dean Bradfield of the Manic Street Preachers, a band I really like, uh, loves this album. He says, it was Sean who introduced me to this when we were about 13 or 14. I was right in the middle of my indie clash phase. People always go on about how they want to have a cinemascope in our music or be like a film soundtrack. Uh, but this guy was actually doing it in a full-blooded, committed way. And you mentioned that earlier. That's why I wanted to make sure I read this exact quote, because you were talking about sort of the, the cinematic aspect of it. Uh, it's an album that is absolutely lost in the middle of a jungle in another world and not a record that an Englishman like Thomas Dolby should ever have made. It evokes a place that you've never been to and you'll never go to again. And I thought that was a really good kind of setup for this because there is this sort of almost like you're lost in the middle of an exotic jungle by well, well, the whole album. Yeah, well, that's that's the then I think he's hit one of his targets because that's the traveler, you know, the yeah. the eccentric explorer. Good point. And I think that actually sounds like Tom hit the mark with that guy i think the guy he's exactly right that that a lot of the album was soundscapes um dreamscapes but specifically from outside the sort of small world of europe and you get onto tracks like mulu um and you're in a rainforest and mm -hmm. then with dan hicks you know i scare myself you're in some sweaty bar in in new right. orleans and it, it is a travelogue and a lot of tom's music and when he gets onto things like i love you 
goodbye later on in his career. Yeah. It's a travelogue. It, it's um, that's one of Tom's things. You know. Yeah, it is. And I, I have a question around that too that I'm going to ask you. The uh, critical response was pretty good. Rolling Stone gave it four stars. Our, uh, the good old kind of sometimes killjoy Robert Christgau only gave it a C plus. And in his inimitable way, he says, Dolby is a bright and honest fellow, by no means enthralled to his synthesizers. She blinded me with science, proved he knows his way around a good beat. And the lyric sheet bespeaks a level of literacy, literacy rarely achieved by songwriters. But well, I agree with that. I think Tom's lyrics are sometimes rather overlooked. Some of them are incredible. There's a song he wrote recently called Oceaneer. That yes. It's is so beautiful. It is. I agree. Um, it, literate is the right word, too. Then he goes yeah. on to say, but as with so many artists fascinated by synthesizers and more than a few beguiled by their own literacy, his passion for texture subsumes what small knack he has for cruder, more linear devices. If there's an objective correlative for boring, that's it. I don't agree with any of that. Sometimes you have to read Robert Criscow over and over to even understand what he's saying. But uh, I, uh, I, that's his I, thought. Yeah, I mean, I think the the beats, he, he wants a good chunky beat, and that's what science had. Mm. And there isn't a track on the flat earth not even hyperactive that's actually gone down that road mm -hmm. the the beats have all are slightly all warped um and that must have been a, another conscious decision you know tom was looking for yeah. something more interesting than just the dance beats that, yeah. that science had exploited i wonder too chris gow's he comes from kind of a punk background too you know that early new yeah. york cbgb sort of vibe and he probably wants something a little grittier and but so so actually funnily enough so did tom um yeah tom used to love bands like um the banshees but he just evolved his own music into a, in a slightly different direction hmm. i mean everyone in those days was into punk but it it meant different things to different people yeah yeah huh and well i and mean that tom, was... Oh, he ahead. was not a punk but um he knew what it meant to, you know, he knew what the sort of the revolution that had just happened. Yeah. I think, too, that people people forget that it was the punk DIY. Everyone thinks of punk when they th this is my own opinion, I should say. When people I, think I, of punk, Oh, I already agree with what you're about to say. I know you're about saying no. I think it's exactly right. Yeah, I think when people think of punk, they think of the DIY aesthetic of the guitars and the bass and the drums. But that same mm. DIY aesthetic then became applied to technology, like synthesizers. Yeah. And, and yes, that's a cleaner sound, but the same motivation to do-it-yourself that was applying to the punk bands is what's motivating the new wave bands. And so the, maybe it doesn't sound like the punk you're thinking of, but the same motivations are there. You know what I mean? It's still DIY. Yeah, and, and it's so true of Tom. He he started off as a one-man show. Yeah. And uh, which he's in gone full circle and become recently again. But um that was how he began and that was very DIY, just do it yourself. But mm -hmm. he he the reason he wanted computers around was so he could just get up there um on his own and, and put a show across. And I saw a few of his early shows where he was on his own and um, there was a never say die. The trouble with computers in those days is that they often went wrong. 
mm-hmm. but but Tom is incredible is indestructible in that he's used to it. <laughs> right. And I've seen you know I've, I I remember once in Sheffield the whole PPG I think we were using then an early computer before the Fairlight it just wiped and died and I saw Tom in the bus and backstage just programming a little drum tracks a little drum box. Um, with the set and we went ahead with this tiny little drum box and uh, he he had you know punk attitude uh, uh, and like you say the DIY spirit um, Mm -hmm. but he just came out in a different way for him yeah I agree Um, Um, but they're always going to call stuff boring if it's not distorted yes yeah and and the whole point of making an album like Tom was trying to make and like the guy that you just mentioned Chris Gow, Robert Chris Gow. Yeah, was 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 obviously carried into that sort of scenic world. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of sort of punk distortion, and, and to some people that will sound boring. Mm-hmm. It, it's okay. It's not a guitar album, even though it had a great guitarist on it. Yeah. It was a keyboard album, and we're always, you know, and also wearing glasses. You know, it, mm-hmm. you're always going to get accused of that, but it's. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it is a boring album to listen no. to. No. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, okay, let's kick it off with Dis- Dissidents. Uh, you, this is the one song yeah. you and Kevin and probably everybody else has a co-writing on it. Um, this did reach number ninety in the UK charts, which is good. But it, you know, that's ninety. Unfortunately, is not enough. But um, you are the first thing we hear on this album. And my my question, I guess, is that. You had mentioned at all the writing and arranging that Thomas had done. I mean, so he's coming to you saying, this is exactly what I want you to do, note for note? Or are you going to um, get co-writing on this because you guys are sort of jamming this song out? I'm not sure. I think he probably gave us a co-write just because he was going to give us a co-write on one track uh-huh. to reflect general contributions. We, we did occasionally come up with parts and things. and. Rather than just give us 1% of one song and 3% of another, we probably lumped it all into one track. Mm. Uh, maybe there was, I can't remember. That's okay. But um, the point is the main baseline, again, was Tom's. Um, but you're the one, uh, this is, I'm confused. You're the one playing that baseline, correct? No, no, I'm no. not. No, he, he sampled my bass. Oh. At, but there are overdubs <laughs> on that track. Um, as as this, the track develops, you, you hear some kind of... Um, quite aggressive sort of proto-funk licks Mm -hmm. which will have been played but the basic bass line the repeating hypnotic bass line was programmed on the Fairlight Mm. and it might have been my bass he sampled Mm. um, and then I just added the the kind of overdub licks as the song develops Mm. in the little bridge sections they come up more okay well, yeah, I, I mean, this, as I said, as I've said, I feel like you're sort of the, the secret weapon of this album. And I feel well, like, what I, oh, I think Tom, sorry to interrupt. No, please. I mean, I just have to say Tom's the bass player. I, I'm actually the bass player, but Tom's the bass composer. Mm. Okay. So when he, and, oh, go ahead. Um, it might, it might've been why I ended up in Japan because the number of times I've had to deny playing on hyperactive. <laughs> Or, you know, um, uh, try to explain that Screen Kiss, it's, I did play on, um, but it's Tom's beautiful bass line, you know. Uh-huh. No wonder no wonder I end up in Japan, because it becomes quite... <laughs> so, because people then look very disappointed at you, you know. Yeah. But um, I'm not, I'm, I've never hidden behind his 
his skirt or anything. You know, oh. I, uh, I enjoyed being the player, but we'll talk about it more as we go through the tracks. But Dissidents was actually programmed. Okay. Um, except for the overdubs. Well, but the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, that's three times in a row I've interrupted. <laughs> no, I think minute. I'm interrupting you. No. You please go ahead. It's not just about the bass, though. Obviously, that track. There's actually some programmed typewriter on it. As yeah, well, I think. like typewriter as a musical instrument. Yeah, yeah, which is quite cool. And that would have been a typewriter that he just sampled and programmed in. And there's a lot of the guitar would have been real guitar. And is that Kevin or is this Thomas doing? Is it the same thing? No, Kevin. No, Kevin wasn't programmed ever. He was much more his own original player and I think probably more his own original parts although I remember Tom for example there's a, a funny little triplet offbeat in Flat Earth I remember Tom specifically designing so occasionally Tom would lean in on Kevin and make him play something but ten, Kevin tended to be a bit freer hmm. because you don't really program guitar in the way that you can program bass right okay um, I want to read one, the reason I was interrupting you is because I want to read this one quote that I read about your bass playing on allmusic.com because what you were just saying about the reality of your playing sort of um, calls this quote into question. Let me, let me read this to you. Matthew Seligman's bass is a welcome addition. Throughout the album, his work is lavish, growling, popping through octaves, uh, popping through octaves, sorry, Funkified and twinkling with harmonies, <laughs> and uh, but you saying all this, it's making me wonder. Like you said, it, so is this not an organic process where the the band, whatever that may be, is in a room, you know, working stuff out, or does Tom have it all in his head and he wants you to play a very specific thing? And then he's as the producer of this album is going to go back to the lab and treat it however he wants to treat it. Mm. No, not not quite either of those. It, it depended from track to track, but it was always um, a human process because we'd sit there as players and record the track with him. It, it wasn't him alone in his laboratory, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, although a lot of that came in post production, mm-hmm. but originally the tracking, the way stuff was laid down, was all of us. Uh, well, first we'd rehearse it. We rehearsed for about three weeks, I think, up in Oxford. Uh, and I think in a, a, maybe a family house, maybe his brother's house or something, or, or we rented something up in Oxford. And then we'd, we'd all hang around while the tracks were going down, most of those six weeks. We would be coming and going. And when I sit down with Tom and I do a bass line, that's, that's a human moment between the two of us. Mm. But it varied from track to track. There's, there's tracks that I played a lot of bass on, like Flat Earth, mm-hmm. and obviously Screen Kiss. There's tracks... I scare myself. There's tracks that I played some bass on, like Mulu. Well, I played all the bass on that too, but a lot of it it isn't really a bass line. It's just a melody line. There's some tracks that I didn't play any bass on, like uh, a Hyperactive. Hmm. It varied from track to track. And and Dissidence was another example where it was about 50-50. I was doing the overdubs, but the the main line was, was programmed by Tom. Okay. Um, so let's go to Flat Earth, the song. And now I gotta yeah. tell you, it's funny. Um, when I was Googling Thomas Dolby, the Flat Earth, to start talking about this, 
or to look into this. All these articles kept popping up about how Thomas Dolby has become a flat earther or a member of the <laughs> flat earth society. And I was reading, uh, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know whether that's a weird thing or a smart thing. You know what I mean? And it just was like, oh, is he, he's one of those. And I would read one article where it would say, you know, in 2009, he decided that I started looking into it. Now I believe what they're saying. And then I read something else that said, <laughs> I no, I don't believe it. I just had an album called The Flat Earth. Do you, do you know, has he, <laughs> you kind of touched on this earlier. Do you think, is he a we, flat um, earth believer? We live in an age of information cancer. So that, <laughs> yes. and I'm afraid that's information cancer. It's, it, they are just tumors that, um, yeah. It's completely untrue. Tom is not a flat earther. Okay. <laughs> so someone's just got hold of that idea and uh, run with it, haven't they? Yeah. But yeah. Um, we've talked about some crazy stuff, but we've never really thought that the earth was flat. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's flat because when I go down on Brian, Brighton Beach, it looks curved to me. <laughs> I just take it by what I see in front of me. But right. I might be. I might be being deluded, or maybe the whole uh, sort of there's a weird sort of magnifying glass effect in the atmosphere, but it looks curved to me. Yeah, I uh, I've always assumed it was because that's just what we're taught. But I know Thomas is a really smart well, guy. No, I um, I know? don't. Yeah, that <laughs> so, isn't the reason. Yeah. Sorry, I don't think it's curved because they teach you that. I don't think you should uh, not question what you're taught. But um, I I. I do accept that uh, most of the pictures look, it looks like a globe. It makes sense that something in a vacuum would tend to form that kind of a shape. Mm -hmm. If it was, you know, I understand how gravity probably makes it end up elliptical or spheroid or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I can see the horizon looks a bit curved. I love, you know, the, the, a real good piece of evidence is the green spark. Do you know about that? No. If in the Caribbean or near the equator, just after the sun sets, you'll see this beautiful green spark. And what that is, is the sun shining through the top little bit of the, of the sea just after it's set. Because the earth is curved, it can shine through the sort of cut, cutting off the top little mm -hmm. cusp of a section of sea just as it sets behind it. And so for a moment, you're seeing the sun through the sea because, and it can only do that if the sea is curved. Interesting. And you get this lovely green spark. Wow. Do you know how long that spark lasts? I think I saw it once and it's like bonk. That's it. It's a, yeah. Really? I, I don't I don't like to believe what everyone says. You know, there's lots of things that people say that I don't believe, but I do believe the earth is curved and I know yeah. Tom agrees with me. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> so that's just all wrong. Well, good. <laughs> well I'm glad we've clarified because that's all that <laughs> popped up when I would type in Thomas Dolby Flat Earth was all these no. things saying he's a flat earther. I mean I don't know, he 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 might have secrets from me. I'm sure he has got yeah. secrets, but I've never I've never. I think the idea about the title was kind of mocking, really. Yeah, yeah, probably. Okay. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if there's a flat earth earthist <laughs> listening to this. I, I admire you. You know, I'm I'm glad you've got your own mind, but I just don't think you're looking at the evidence objectively. I think you've already decided what you want to think, and you're making things fit into it. 
think you might be right. <laughs> and, but that that person is welcome, or those people, if there's multiple, are welcome to you know let us know. Um, yeah. You know, fill us in on this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, now, most of the a lot of the reviews and stuff like that there uh, that I read um, stated that the flat Earth is kind of to them the highlight of the album. It's one of his. They yeah, it's one I of think it's most beautiful. Uh, compositions. So is it? That's what I was going to ask you. Do you feel like it's a it's a definite peak creatively? Yeah, I, I love what it just starts off brilliantly with these sort of peals of Jupiter uh, sequences. I mean, they're triggering. It's self-triggering. It's the um, sample and hold. I, I don't know. God, I'm, Tom will probably say something completely different, but it's the internal triggers of the Jupiter peeling off in these beautiful sounds that he's designed. And uh, I think it's a really stunning beginning. Yeah. And then the bass comes in on that backwards. And um, the first thing you hear is backwards bass. And we, w th that wasn't very easy to make actually. We had to, well, how did we do that? We had to, I had to learn the bass line forwards and then turn it over, turn the tape over, playing the tape backwards and learn how to play it, play the bass line backwards. Wow. And then we turn the tape over again, and m me playing the bass line backwards on the backwards tape gets inverted again, and you now hear the bass line forwards, but sounding like it's backwards. Oh my gosh. Uh, and that took quite a lot of doing. It wasn't done by machines. We had to sit down, and I had to learn the bass line backwards, and then play it, and then he turned the tape around. And that's how you get that kind of backwards sounding effect on the bass line until the real bass line comes in playing all the same notes yeah. uh, and sounding like the same bass line, but now it sounds forwards because it is. It's fascinating to me that an artist, any artist, uh, would sit at home while writing out this music and thinking, you know what would be perfect here is if we played the bass and then we played it backwards and then we played it forwards again, and yeah. that would be the exact sound that I'm looking for. Like, who even knows if that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, somebody thought that, thought about that. That blows my mind. Well, I, I mean, what I like about it is it's very untechnical. It's not done electronically. It was done kind of Heath Robinson, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, with sitting down and, and actually learning how to do it physically huh. um, rather than using a machine to reverse... Uh, the the sound file yeah and a, quite a lot of tom's stuff that's what i liked about it It was almost heath robinson it was a bit mad scientist uh done in that kind of way rather than just with electronic techniques yeah jeez well it's it is kind of, i mean i'm i i believe i like every song in this album except for one pretty equally yeah. and uh so i I, I don't like that song either yeah. <laughs> I am I think, to hear you, what you think. Well, let's see. You're talking about White City? No, I'm um, actually talking oh, about Hulu. Uh, um, yeah. well, okay, right. Yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. Well, they're, well, they're, they're beside each other, so poor them. Um, okay. Yeah. But anyway, so Flat Earth, then, then Flat Earth comes in with this the Marvin Gaye, the TR-808. Yes. Um, and, but, so that's the Jupiter 4, and then the 808, and, and the bass line. That was one of the bass lines I put a bit more of me into and and he let me do a few licks on there too and i was playing that with a plectrum okay uh, and and this was the guitar the strange little delayed offbeat where it comes on the 
a normal offbeat probably comes on the two and the four beat, but this one comes on the three beat. Mm. And th that was quite carefully designed by Tom. And then he put, we didn't hear the vocal. We didn't know anything about the song. We just built the backing track. And I remember um, it all came back to England and he did the vocals at Eel Pie, Pete Townsend's studio. Oh. And uh, I remember when uh, I first heard that vocal, I, I thought, wow, Tom can really sing. Yeah. So you did you not know? Did these songs have names or lyrics when you wrote them or recorded? No, them? a lot. A lot of them we rehearsed up as backing tracks, but we didn't yet know. And maybe Tom hadn't even yet written what what the top line was. Huh. Um, and I remember that specific. Uh, certainly, Screen Kiss too. But um, I remember with Flat Earth, we didn't have a clue what was going on top of it. Huh. But 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 Tom, I'm sure did. Wow, that's that's interesting. So you're just playing. You don't even. You know you're writing a song, you don't know exactly what the song's even going to be about. Well, no, it's 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 because Tom's composed it all. So we're just yeah, true. We're, okay. we're just playing the parts he's given us and we know it all fits together in his head. Yeah. yeah. So okay. it doesn't have to fit in us. True. And when you say he's composed it, like is he giving you sheet music with notes? No. Okay. None of us including Tom could read music. Okay. So what is he? How is he conducting you with this composition? I can't remember. <laughs> oh. Does he come to you and say like I? I don't. And this goes for anyone. I mean, does he? Does the writer of the music come to you and say what I want you to do here is I want you to play a little bit like this, and then I want it to speed up half a second, and then I want no. it to slow down, or how does? He... I mean, uh, some people do that, but Tom is much more like he'll give you the notes. So he must have done it with a keyboard, probably a piano. And just showing me the notes. Okay. okay. But he might sometimes sing them. Okay. Well, let's move on to Screen Kiss. Uh, and this is, you know, again, a lot of the reviews I read, it's back to back, yeah. like the most beautiful things ever, Flat Earth and Screen Kiss. One little tidbit of information I read just five minutes before we started talking that blew my mind was that this song was originally intended to uh, be um, a part of Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock album that was produced oh. by Trevor Horn. Did you know that? Is that? Do you know if that's no. true? Well, that would explain why we uh, we did record it in in uh, Trevor Horn's studio in Basic Street. Yeah. Is that some never, or is that different? Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never really understood what we were doing in that studio, but that is where really? I, I put the bass down. And, well, well, no, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait, wait. Uh, the bass went down in Brussels, the, the sort of backing track went down in Brussels, but I remember at some point ending up in Psalm, uh, maybe where the guitar was going on or something. Some, at some point in its its later production, it did go through Psalm Studios, so that would make sense. Really? Yeah. Um, Trevor is my favorite producer of all time, uh, especially that 80s period. Um, he could have done, he could, his, his musical soundscapes are just so lush and colorful. Yeah, and, I think he's know, great. And I, I love him. Owner of a Lonely Heart. I think that's yes, a very sir. clever track. Yes. And the, the sounds on the drums and that. And the, yeah, so. Yeah. The, 90210, that's one, or 90125. What, I always get the Beverly Hills TV show and the Yes album mixed up. 90210, <laughs> 90125. He, anyway, he was also a great bass anyway. player. Um, yeah. Was he in Art of Noise? Was he part of that or was that Yes. Not? No, that was him. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was great production and, was. and great bass playing. So he's very underrated as a bass player. But I saw him play that live at Wembley and 
um, th- that's a he played the pick, and it's it's really nifty. He's playing. Ah. Yeah, I love him. He was uh, ABC's Lexicon of Love, that Yes album, Grace Jones, yeah. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. There's so many, and that Duck Rock album. I love that Duck Rock album. So that was really interesting to me that that song may have uh, been meant or intended to be given to that album. Um, there's a lot of conga drums in Screen Kiss. It's sort of a breezy yeah. sound. I really like it. Um, your bass is very twisty and prominent. Is that yeah. a, uh, is that, again, is that you doing the twisty bass or is that him yeah, treating that, your bass? Uh, no, that's Tom r- has written the bass line. That was quite interesting because like I said, we've been listening to Tin Drum and really only a matter of weeks before we went to Brussels, he, he bought uh, he, he asked me to go and buy myself a fretless, so I went and bought an Ibanez because that's what Sting played. Mm. And it was to play Screen Kiss on and uh, another couple of tracks. And Tom knew that uh, I'd never played fretless before, like he knew that I'd never played Moog before. And I, I added a couple of uh, expressive bits to the to the line, like um, I played some of it in har- harmonics, and but basically the the notes are all toms completely hmm. and you, you can actually tell that i'm just a bit of a novice on the fretless because there's no vibrato at all hmm. and the one thing you're meant to do when you play a fretless is use vibrato just to sort of m- make the note sing a bit and also mm-hmm. to, to deal with the tuning problem of it not being quite in tune so if you broaden the note by uh moving your finger up and down the neck slightly it it takes away from any tuning problems there might be hmm. but we didn't know that i didn't know that right and so, so there's no vibrato on the on the fretless on screen kiss but we just sat there for about three hours i think it took and tried to get it as in tune as we could tom's got a very good ear and he'd just sit there and say oh that was a bit flat or you know and we just went very carefully through that track okay for for like a morning um just putting it down so I, that was probably one where he, he gave me, he let me put my expressive bits in, but equally a lot of the, I'd say 95%, 98% of the, of the notes are ones that Tom wrote. Huh. I'm, you saying this about the fretless bass, I had a conversation with somebody on here about what the difference between a bass and a fretless, what, what sound does it make, what's special about it? And I'm a little nervous that it was you I had that conversation. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. We? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can explain. It's um, you know, guitars have um, frets, and the frets are made of metal, and the strings are made of metal usually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're made of nylon. So usually with uh, a bass, you've got metal on metal. With a fretless, all all the the frets are gone. So. You've just got the wood of the neck, and you're holding the, uh, the string onto the wood, and it just because of the the warmth of the wood, as against the coldness of the metal of fret, mm-hmm. it's a much warmer sound. It's it's a much less specific sound as well. It's kind of blurrier, and uh, it's got this little whining tone, because again the string is slowly rising up from the wooden neck, uh, and for, and for the first kind of millimeter or something it'll be sort of slightly buzzing against the neck but in quite a musical way huh. and the other uh, on 
screen kiss the other thing i exploited is that you can you can slide your notes around and you could also slide the harmonics around um and it all gets a bit more lyrical really okay so it was it was just something that uh, tom said yeah let's let's just use fretless on a few tracks and so so we i just the other thing we did to the fretless which is a technical thing was that uh, on the back of the neck, I remember when I was doing all this mad trying to learn how to play the thing before we went to Brussels, I remember noticing that the sound of the guitar not plugged in because I was living in a flat in London and I couldn't make a noise, so I, d- I used to practice not plugged in. It was actually really nice. The acoustic sound of a fretless is a nice sound. So we got a, a tape pickup, which is a called a seducer c hyphen deucer okay which is what you usually use to mic up things like congas and you can use it to take an acoustic sound rather than an electronic sound and turn it into an electronic sound so we put this tape mic on the back of the fretless a contact mic it's called and mixed in with the electronic sound of the pickups on the bass the acoustic sound of the actual bass itself as it sounded in the room I remember on, on Screen Kiss, the mix was about 75 pickups, 25% this little contact mic. Hmm. On the other tracks, we used it on Mulu, which we'll come to in a moment, your mm-hmm. your your most hated track. <laughs> and that was probably 100% contact mic uh, in the little bass solo in the middle. And then on I Scare Myself, uh, it was about 50-50. Mm. But the idea was to try and take an electronic guitar like a fretless and make it sound more like an acoustic guitar, like a double bass. And that's why the bass sound on that album is slightly different. Okay. Huh. So there's a, a nerdy bit. Yeah. For all you bass players out there, you're getting some <laughs> juice here from Matthew Seligman. Well, the context never been done properly and yeah. someone is yet to do it properly. I keep trying with my fretless, but... um. Do you still it play never... the bass? Do you practice or? Yeah, I, I still play, but I don't. I I do play fretless sometimes when I need to. I I nearly did um, a fretless mm. gig a couple of months ago, so I I learned it up. But um, mm. it it scares me such because it's so critical on the tuning. So I mm. I try to avoid it, and it haunts me slightly because sometimes I read, oh, uh, you know, that's Matthew Seligman's greatest piece of work, the fretless on there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's another reason I hide away in Japan. In case of, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I, I do like the fretless. And if I was really good about it, I would play it a lot more. I'm okay. sure um, there's some lovely things you can do with it, but I'm just a bit lazy. Okay. And and I like my just nice fretted sure. jazz basses. Got it. Fender. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about your favorite song, White City. Can I, um, can I just put a plug in? Yeah. For Fender. <laughs> Ah. Because one of those jazz basses I own, um, they gave me. So I, oh. I really want to thank them. But I, I do love jazzes. Good. <laughs> I love Fender jazzes. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm, did that. Yeah, because I just mentioned Ibanez, so I ought to mention Fender. <laughs> <laughs> Give a, spread the love around. Well, right? they're great basses. I mean, for me, they make a perfect sound, the jazzes. Instruments and and humans are like dogs and humans. They kind of grow together over time. Mm, I could see that. And, and I've I've really sort of grown together with the the, the Fender Jazzes. Okay. 
Um, how often do you play out now? I mean, you're an important barrister, you know. Uh, oh, no. Um, well, let me see. I, I, I practice every day. I try to. You know, you can't really call yourself a musician if you don't. Uh -huh. I didn't used to practice, but you do have to practice. Playing out, I, I, I'm lucky nowadays because recently I've um, I've moved near to a pub in Rains Park in London called The Cavern, and they have a jam every Thursday. Oh, fun. So I can go around there and play, and I've got some friends, and we're, we're trying to do a little covers band as well. We're, we're doing three artists, Bowie, Free, and Neil Young. <laughs> and... Uh, we're gonna it's more it's a halfway between a tribute and a covers band so we'll do a little set one of each so it'll be a neil young tribute band for one set and then a david bowie tribute band for one and then a free tribute band for the other because that my favorite bass player was in free andy fraser oh wow so i do go out and play yeah i i keep myself playing good interesting okay i wondered what your musical life was like nowadays yeah but the barrister no i stopped doing the barrister I, I don't know what happened really, um, but I did end up sort of going off to Japan in a, 2005. And after I came back from Japan, which I've done a couple of times, one of which is now, mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't barrister anymore. You can't really take huge career breaks and, yeah. and stay stay hot. So I went back and worked in solicitor's offices, and that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm doing human rights in a, oh. in a firm up in Dalston called Campbell Taylor. Look, I'm, oh. I put that as a plug. Yeah, but but that's a traumatic memory because once we there was a horrible <laughs> earthquake in Sendai in Japan, which my family was caught up in, and I immediately I ran away. It was on a Friday. I I went down to Heathrow and got on the plane. ANA put me on. I plugged them too now. So mm -hmm. they I just had air miles and I got out to Sendai. You know where the tsunami was at, yeah. in Japan, right? And um, I eventually turned up. I came back. About a week later, with uh, my family, with my wife and uh, daughter, um, and the the boss of the firm where I was working at the time complained that when I talked to the Guardian newspaper paper out there, I hadn't <laughs> named his firm. <laughs> well, so that's why. You, okay. So I'm so that's why I'm plug naming every single <laughs> product and manufacturer that I come across. In. <laughs> I'm nervous. Uh, I'll get... Make sure everybody's happy. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. So White City, White City. Yeah, um, White no, City. not my favorite track. No, uh, I thought it's my least favorite track. Yeah, I don't mind it. Because I think because uh, at that point, it's been, we've had these very kind of lush, more mellow songs up to that point. This one's kind of peppy. And, uh, yeah. and so I don't mind. It. It's really, you know, it's. It's probably the closest thing, other than Hyperactive, which is its own separate, it doesn't even feel like it fits or it makes sense on this album, even though it's a great song. White City is sort of like, oh, here's the Thomas Dolby that I thought I knew from Golden Age of Wireless a little bit more. There's yeah, a Kevin guitar is. solo in there, which nothing else really, it's not a long one, but there's a little bit of, Kevin gets yeah. a chance to kind of lash out for a second. Why don't you like that song as much? Maybe because it's a rock song, and oh. I don't think I—I I just didn't like that kind of beat. I, I think rock songs, in a way, should be rock. Aren't what Tom does best. It—it it should be rockier to be a rock song. But it's a rock song with a kind of programmed bass. Okay. Um, I—I I think it's not quite the right sound picture. 
I, I don't know what the melody is, really, what, what the melody of the chorus is. I like the bit at the end where actually a friend of mine, Robin from the Soft yeah, Boys, Hitchcock, comes along as Keith. You know, I like all that sort of surreal stuff. I think that was the first take, really. He just got Robin in to chat along at the end. Did Thomas um, write those words? No, no, that's completely unscripted. Is that's, it? Um, that's just Robin <laughs> being Robin. Yeah. Um, I don't want to slag it off, but to me, it, it never had any kind of emotional impact. So I wouldn't know which bit of it I was meant to be liking. Mm, interesting. But it, it's it's it. What's well, funny? It's it's a bit. I think we did it live, you know, and it works okay live. It, it's funny that often you're on stage and people assume you're really into everything you're playing, but sometimes you're not into every track you're mm. playing. It's just like that, you know, but it, it wasn't, I didn't dislike it at all. Um, I just wasn't, didn't work for me in, in the way that I thought Tom's music should work. Mm. Okay. I don't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't offend me. I, is Keith an, a real person? Is that just a character made up for this song? Oh, that's is it just based a on some. Okay, I didn't know if it was based on somebody you guys knew or. No. What the I story was. Okay. We didn't know Keith. Okay. Is it about? I mean, is is it a direct drug reference? I mean, is the White City cocaine, so to speak? Is that? No, no. It was a place near where we lived. Tom was a West London boy, and. There was, there was a big stadium in Shepherd's Bush that was uh, knocked down, I think, um, probably to make Westfield, the huge shopping center that's there now. Um, and that was called the White City. It actually staged it, the Olympics, I think, in 1920 or something, one of the early Olympics. Okay. Uh, it was just called White City. It's a place in London. There's still a, you'll find a tube station on the map where it was. Okay. Um, I don't I haven't listened to the lyrics to know if they. Um, shall I look them up on the net while we're talking? <laughs> I don't. Uh, let's have a look. Lyrics. White city. Yeah. Let's see what it's. Um, Keith was the sort. I think there is a. Oh, it's soul inhabitant. Yeah. I like that soul inhabitant stuff. Um, yeah. oh, it's, I've got the Pogues White city. Yeah, that's a good one White too. City. Um, let's have a look. Well, it says here, uh, a thin white powder film on everything, but soot is the color of the white city, white city. Uh, um, Keith talked in alpha numerals. Have you got the same song? Yeah, I'm looking at, the, yeah, I'm looking at the, uh, lyrics in the CD. Okay, okay, wait a sec. Keith was a soul inhabitant, so I like all that, um, Uh, from the streets of China mountains, far from the ladder of these auto banks. Keith talked in alphanumerals. I like that line. I like that word. Yeah. He built a drug cathedral. Yeah, it does look a bit shape of an octahedron. That's the old acid tap. Well, God. Sorry about that. Oh, um, that's okay. No, but in my other work, as you know, mental health work, I've seen the horrible damage. Lives just thrown away. No. by drugs yeah yeah it, it and it you know these um these myths like they're not addictive and stuff and i don't know anything nice that isn't yeah <laughs> very true i mean you've got two choices with drugs haven't you they're they're either horrible or they're great and if it's the second you're really in trouble yeah it really is 
you, you, you know, you don't want anything great to be something you have, you know, you can't live without. Yeah. Um, and and you, it just destroys lives. And I've, a lot of people in hospitals that I act for, um, it it destroys brains as well as lives. Yeah. It's very sad. It is. So it may, there may have been some drug, direct drug references to... Maybe, I mean... Yeah. So are you happy with this vision you've created? Maybe Tom's asking the same kind of question we were just talking about. It might have been a, a kind of um, something to do with that. I mean, the soul inhabitant could, it is what drugs make you, this kind of soul inhabitant you're alive. It, they're very isolating. Okay, I was just curious. Um, yeah, yeah I don't so know I don't know a lot about... But So that's another programmed bass, except in the middle eight, where you suddenly switch the real bass. There's a kind of middle section. I think I've got some overdub bass in there too, but a lot of that bass is, is programmed. Okay. Let's talk about Mulu. And it's right. Not, this one uh, hates a <laughs> You don't like it. <laughs> hates a strong word. This song to me is sort of the Revolution 9 of the album a little bit. It's more, it's sort of like, let's, let us let me show you how clever I can be with sound collages versus a actual well, it was, song. Um, you know? The only time I've ever participated in anything that got nominated for a Grammy. That got nominated for a Grammy? For a Grammy? Yeah, it did, yeah. I didn't know that. Man, yeah. I shouldn't have said anything then. That's, that's, not, right. that's not fair of me to say something. But um, I think as a sort of sound collage, yeah. It's dream time, you know, it's the Maori dream time. It's okay. about the, ra the rainforest out in Australia. So as part of Tom's concept of this sort of, like we said, the, the eccentric traveler, uh, beetling about the, the flat earth um, it fits in that story and, and in this track he's out in the rainforest in okay. Australia yeah okay you have a nice kind of bass solo in the middle of that thing or yeah, assuming that, it's you <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that is and th that sound is 100% the contact mic oh. and that's why it's, it sounds a little bit different and um that that was complete nonsense that we just i didn't have a clue what i was playing but we just wanted to make a noise huh. and that that's tom's punky side you know and it was literally just a it was just a, do something here my friend. so i i'd have to just empty my head and did something and i think part of it is a missed harmonic that huh. kind of ends up clunking on a string and but it had an effect it was sound more than it was music and that, that was, it was just meant to be a bit of an event, you know, okay. in the middle of the track. Yeah. And the rest of it is just a melody that Tom wrote and I just played the melody he gave me. Okay. In the, in the verses. I think it's the vocal melody, maybe. I can't remember. You mentioned earlier, I Love You Goodbye, which is maybe my yeah. favorite Thomas song overall. It's fantastic, yeah. I it love is. That song. Um, and there's a swamp vibe to that song as well yeah. does he have a thing for swamps or do no you know? <laughs> okay i didn't know if he like if he's like boy and he you know he he worked on that boat lives by a lighthouse or oh, a lighthouse or something i wonder yeah. if there's like a nautical water theme going on here maybe in tom's maybe. life you know well, but um mulu wasn't swampy but there is definitely a nautical theme in tom's life and that's why oceaneer is such a touching yeah lyric um he is a sailor uh, very much in his heart and i know that because my dad was a sailor too huh. um and tom 
uh, we went on a little sailing holiday once in the middle of all that um, when we were the, the sort of the pinnacle years. We took our parents sailing down in Greece, and with my dad and I think his dad were, were both sailors. Definitely my dad, most of his life. And Tom was a sailor. He'd go up sailing on his windsurfer, and um, he ended up with the nutmeg of consolation, this boat in his garden, which he turned into a studio. But he has a very strong nautical side, and that's why he lived yeah. in that in that lifeboat house on the east coast of England for so long. I think he yeah. still has it. He probably does. And the sea, one of my submarines, uh, yeah, one of our submarines. It's, right. it's a very strong theme in his life. Yeah. I'm and swamps, I guess you're right, is a sort of transitional state, isn't it? Between land and sea, you'd uh, be in a swamp. Um, still water related. He does seem yeah. to have an affection for those. Because it's even, um, it's like sound, there's sound effects. There's swampy sound effects in this song as there are in yeah. I Love You Goodbye. And there's also songs just blatantly about water or he's worked on water or within, you know, on boats or whatever. He seems to kind of... Go, that seems to be sort of a comfortable place for it's, him. It's, it's, yeah. Well, it's travel, isn't it? It's um, the world is my oyster. Yeah, it? yeah, I guess so. It's, it's very travel-based, not quite colonial. I used to wonder, really, the way you know this English language pop music was just a latter-day way of colonizing the world. Once your empire had folded and your armies had all been disbanded, you could kind of colonize the pop music and. I wondered if that was why there was this travel sort of motif in a lot of things. Mm. There's a lot of travel in his music, and that's why the scenes are always changing from mm -hmm. New Orleans to Queensland. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And, and Mulu is a is one of the examples of, and, and so is the next track. I scare myself. Yeah, I so let's move to scare myself. First of all, it's a cover which of yeah. Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks, which is not. Someone you would think of Thomas wanting to cover at that time. It did reach number 46 on the UK charts. Yeah. Uh, it features Kevin's trumpet debut. He didn't know how to play a trumpet, but he said he did, so he played a little trumpet line in this in this song. Well, no, that again, but that's the Thomas's punk side uh, coming out. Yeah, Tom Tom knew that Kevin couldn't <laughs> play, and but Kevin's a very musical guy, and he could send him in with a trumpet and get something funny out of it, and that. That's what you've got. You've got Pete Toms playing this beautiful trombone, and but some of the sort of startup notes at the beginning of the song. And that's just Kevin with his trumpet. And I remember he was there for a kind of half an hour, and he came back, and his upper lip was completely red mm. because um, he'd never played trumpet before, and when, and and, it, and he'd sort of destroyed his upper lip, and it was <laughs> swollen and red. It was he'd like he'd been in a boxing fight, but it. Yeah, so that was a bit like asking me to play the fretless bass. Yeah. Tom liked that side of people when he'd, uh, he'd, you know, exploit their incompetence, really, or their innocence. Right, that, that's probably it, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So Scare Myself has the, the Marvin Gaye, the 808 groove. It was a song Tom had always loved, and it was the side of him that was, it was completely out of keeping with his time, you know, to do a jazzy cover of an American do-what band or whatever Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks were. Yeah, yeah. But he did it nice and he got Gabby Aegis in to do some, a dance sequence and she was a really interesting modern dancer. Huh. 
She she they did the video together, the the middle bit of the dance sequence. She's a waitress and she grabs yeah. him and they they go off into some other room. But she was quite an interesting dancer at that time. Huh. And okay. uh, it was full of nice ideas, but unusual ideas. And in terms of scene setting, it, again, it was another stop on his journey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tom Tom got a plane eventually and. We flew out to a place called Seligman out in Arizona. Really? Yeah, just to land there and and, and, and say that Seligman went to Seligman. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, he flew me there. <laughs> Seligman, Arizona. It's on yeah. Route 66. Actually. Okay. Oh, interesting. I've never been there. Yeah. And we just landed. There's a lot of cars. A lot of there was a lot of dead cars there yeah. in in scrapyards. And there was an airstrip, and we just landed and went and found a bar, and no one was very interested in the fact that that was my name. Yeah. <laughs> and we had a tea, maybe even a bit of maple syrup, waffle or something, and, and then flew back again. Was he it's the crazy. pilot of this plane? Yeah. He was, oh my gosh. Huh? Yeah. I remember the door came open just as we were taking off, <laughs> and he he had to grab a reach across me and shut the door as he was taking off with one hand and shutting the door with the other hand and I was just sitting there all vomiting I think yeah <laughs> of course you were oh my gosh wow no it's quite exciting I bet okay um do you know does math is that Kevin playing like the Spanish guitar on this song yeah beautiful. that's him doing everything yeah, yeah. beautiful Amazing. acoustic guitar on that yeah. yeah really plays it well that yeah, scare myself might be like if he if you're the MVP of a lot of these other songs, he that might be the song he's most MVP of. Yeah, and that's the man who played on what was the Iggy Pop album? Blah blah, he blah, blah blah. That's my favorite. yeah. And yeah. what's the single off that? Wild Real Child. Wild Child. Yeah. Yeah. So there's Iggy Pop's guitarist, but it doesn't sound like it. It's yeah. fantastic. I know. Other side of Kevin. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was really impressed with that. Uh, yeah. Okay, now the song. And that over. again, oh. that was a Tom written bassline that that I would I was you know I had to play on the fretless. Huh. And that was one where I really do think Tom uh, again just wrote every note and I just uh, played it for him. So he's the MVP. Yeah, true. I I know. Yes, I know. I'm not trying to take anything away from Tom. No, I, no. I, it's, it's just yeah. It, I, one always credits the player, but. And usually that's right, but this was a case where I would credit the composer. Okay. That's really interesting because, like I said, the thing that to me makes this album special or extraordinary is a lot of the bass playing. And if you're telling me yeah. that that's, that most of that or a lot of that was Thomas, then that really is hats off to him. That's amazing. Yeah, um, he would have been a great bass player. Yeah. Well, so there's only seven songs, and the last one is hyperactive. And right, uh, yeah. story on this one is supposedly that he wrote this for Michael Jackson. What I've always been curious about was whether uh, did Michael were they buddies? You mentioned Michael earlier, so they may have known each other. And Michael said, "Hey, Thomas, why don't you write me a song?" Or was Thomas just sitting there thinking, "I think I'm going to write a song for Michael Jackson today." Well, uh, I think I think Tom, uh, I think Michael Jackson. They weren't buddies, but I think Michael Jackson did ask him to write him a song. He, I think he used to ask quite a lot of people to write him a song, and Tom did write him a song, but it was a different song called Interference, oh. which which was written around that time, and I think it was a song that might almost have got onto Flat Earth. 
but in the end, didn't it? It turned up into, into a demo that went to Michael Jackson. I think Tom was quite... I think we all thought that Michael would probably do it, but he didn't. And, yeah. but, and, and melodically, um, Hyperactive was quite close to that. But uh, Hyperactive, I remember it began life as a slightly different thing. It was a, a synth bass line. And it actually quite suited it as a synth bass line with quite a lot of envelope. Uh, and it was on those, one of those little drum boxes that I was talking about before. The, well, the drum boxes had a bass equivalent. And he, I remember he programmed it up in, in the bus and it sounded great on this little thing called a bass line. So it started off much more electronic. And I personally, I, I never mentioned this at the time, but I've always loved it in its kind of craft work version when it was much more electronic. That has always stuck in my mind as, as the best incarnation of Hyperactive. But it went on a slightly different journey and it acquired, uh, instead of this kind of craft work beat, it acquired this kind of offbeat, mm. skippy beat alongside the sort of now a sampled bass line trying to sound like a real bass playing. Mm. And I'm not sure that that transition really helped it. I think it was much cleverer when it was an electronic track. Mm. But it became this sort of real track. So it's a, I don't know what you, how you described the beat, but it wasn't in those days what, what we knew as contemporary dance beat. Mm. And that is probably the thing that limited its programmability. Because the melody was great. There's nothing wrong with the melody. It's a great right. sort of pop melody. The bass line's incredible. It might have just taken a slightly uh, wrong turn in the way that it ended up sounding. I'm, I'm huh. not sure. I, I preferred it earlier as a kind of craft work. Okay. Now, I should say there is a deluxe or collector's edition of Flat Earth that puts on all the bonus tracks and stuff. like. I've never heard that one. And... Uh, we weren't going to talk about that version anyway. Maybe this interference song is on there. I don't even know. I think I'll there's a live track. There's, um, there's another song he wrote around that time called The Marseillaise. Hmm. And there's a live version of that. We used to play that live. And I think that's on there. Maybe Interference is on it. I don't know. Interference was good. I used to really like it. Was it an obvious single? I mean, was do you know when he did it, was he thinking... Hyperactive, yeah, yeah, I think it was. Because the, the bass line was incredible, the melody was great. I think we all knew all along it was going to be the single. I'm just not sure... In a, you know, in a way, it would have been really interesting to get some drummers in to, to drum that one. That was a programmed drum beat. Mm. Um, they might have done different things, and it, it might have just taken a, a bit of a... It, taken it on a different path, I'm not sure. We'll never know. I mean, the video is one of my favorite videos ever. I've watched it with my kids more times than I can even count. Um, were you, uh, you probably, you're not in the video. Were you there? No. Were you involved at all? No. Um, Kevin is actually, he's the voice that says at the beginning, tell me about your mother. And he does that, <clears throat> that clearing the yeah. throat sound. That's, That's Kevin, Kevin Armstrong. Yeah. Really? Sounding, sounding like a German psychiatrist. I always thought he said, tell me about your childhood. Oh, childhood, sorry. Is it child okay. <laughs> I wondered if I had been mishearing all this time. No, okay, no, so that's that, Kevin. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's. Ke I think so. Okay. I'm pretty sure I remember Kevin doing that. Kevin, you know, you could get Kevin to to act the fool. You know, he, he could be very funny. <laughs> he's, he's, sometimes people say this about me, you know, that I'm a natural 
comedian in a Mr. Bean sort of way, but I would accuse Kevin of exactly the same thing. Really? <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, some, I mean, like, he wants, he, he was in a car wash and he, he wanted to quickly get the windscreen wipers down. So he jumped out of the car uh, to, to put the windscreen wipers down before the things in, enveloped the car. But he didn't get back in time and the car wash slowly prized off the door of his car. Oh, no way. Really? <laughs> and as well as washing the whole inside of the car at that point. <laughs> and... He could do a lot of, you know, he stalked us once, but I remember in Brussels, he just, he was just driving alongside us at, at, at two miles an hour all the way home. We were walking home and he just drove along oh he, beside us at walking pace. And uh, for some reason, it was very funny. That is great. Yeah, well, he's a funny it. guy. And, and that's like him it. acting up as the, as the okay. psychiatrist. Okay. So that's it. I mean, seven songs. It's uh, why yeah, is it so not, short? It's not very there... many, is it? It's no. Very short. Yeah. Um, no. I don't know. Huh. He just felt like that was enough. We got it. What we need is this is good. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it's an al It is a piece. You know, the album sounds like an album rather yeah. than a series of seven tracks. It does. And and if there's a couple of dodgy tracks on it, that's that's even more incredible than the the whole thing hangs together like it does. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think there is. I think when you listen to it as an album, you don't probably mind that uh, there's a couple of tracks um, that you don't like as much as the others. Right. Because the thing about great albums is they hang together and you don't kind of isolate the particular tracks. It, it just is a piece. It's like it's a totally book. Feeling. Totally agree. Even Mulu. I mean, like the other, yeah. you know, the other songs are maybe 10 out of 10 and Mulu's a six. But because it's yeah. there and I love everything so much, I don't skip past it. I'm still, you know, just it, as invested. It's it's like a book and, and there might be a chapter that's a bit of, you don't, but you can't skip it out. You've got to read right. the whole story and, yeah. and the narrative continues wherever it goes. And, and I think Flat Earth is like that. And, and even the track listing, it's all got to be listened to in the way that Thomas made it mm -hmm. to be listened to. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so after this, it was, he went into soundtrack work, gothic. Did you play on the Howard the Duck stuff? No, no. Tom was being dragged over to America. He had this studio in Hammersmith where he did do gothic, but he was really being sucked over to America by that stage. Mm. And, and his life was... Again, the you know the travel motif took him over, over there, so we didn't work a lot for the rest of the eighties. Okay, okay. Um, I wondered if you were part of any of those things. No, no. That he he got a new band of some a great bass player called Terry Jackson, who sadly um, passed away. Had a, there was a plane mm. crash. Oh no! Um, but the um, the bass on things like my brain is like a sieve was is just fantastic yeah so he, he tom went over there and got a whole new band an american band and uh i just carried on in london really wow okay well um you know i gotta i gotta admit it, i liked it better when i believed that all of the bass playing was you because i'm that, sorry about that. yeah that's well, okay that's okay. I'm going to continue to believe that just because I love you and we're, you know, I know you better than I know Tom. I don't well, know Tom was, at all. So I want to believe that you're the star here. So I'm going to continue to believe that. The playing is me. You know, no, 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 no. Uh, 
the good stuff, like, I mean, I think Screen Kiss I am proud of, and I'm proud I played it. That is me. Okay. But, well, but I'm you still have to it's you. I'm gonna imagine you still have to add you. a but at the end. <laughs> right, right. But Tom wrote it all. Yeah, okay. Um, well, look, this is one of my favorite albums ever, and I, I, like I said, I only discovered it a few years ago, but I yeah. think it's a, it's a very fascinating piece of art. It's not a pop record. It's a piece it's, of art and it's best on headphones, you know? Yeah. And you, it's something to really get lost in. It's a kind of one of its, there's only one of its type. Really. Yes, that's it. There you have it, hustlers. I hope you guys heard something that you like, gang. If you listen to this entire episode, I really hope that it fed your curiosity as to what the flat earth, if you weren't already familiar with it, would sound like. We tried to insert some of the songs, give you an idea of what it's about, and some backstory on all of it. Especially in this case, right? The technical and sort of creative uh, birthing or, you know, rounding out or uh, uh, exploration of these songs. It's very interesting. I don't know that every con conversation we have is going to be as technical as this one was. Who knows? We'll see. But I hope that these album conversations are furtive ground for interesting conversations. Also, if you had never heard of The Flat Earth and you go check it out, I really want to know what you think. Okay? Give us your feedback. Let us know. It's for you. It's not for you. You loved it. You didn't love it. It's too moody. It's not good enough. Whatever it might be, send me your feedback. I'm really interested in hearing. Okay? Next month, we will be back with another one. Uh, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to keep these secret. I don't know that I'm going to announce everyone ahead of time what they are. But uh, rest assured, I got five or six already on the hook, so there should be another one coming up next month, okay? We'll talk to you later.